me uh, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Our goal is to focus on verses 9 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6. And as we come to this, as any other portion of Scripture, let's be reminded that this is a portion of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and preserved word. Let us therefore with great reverence attend the reading and the hearing thereof, the word of the Lord. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved... We are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. May the Lord richly bless to our hearts, minds, and lives the reading and the hearing of this portion of his holy word. Let us pray. And now let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. 
Well, our quotation is from a Puritan divine by the name of William Googe. If you're not familiar with Googe, please look him up. Um, he's definitely worth the read. And he makes this statement that I'll quote for you. Let not us be wanting to ourselves. If we think assurance of hope worth the having, let us do to the utmost what God enableth us to do for attaining thereunto. Let us acquaint ourselves with the grounds of hope, God's promises and properties, and frequently and seriously meditate thereon. Let us conscionably attend God's ordinances and earnestly pray that God would add his blessing to our endeavor. We are of ourselves backward, dull, and slow to believe and hope. We are much prone to doubting. In these respects, we ought to use the more diligence and to quicken up our spirits unto this full assurance and not cease till we have attained some evidence thereof. It is hereby intended that perseverance must be added to diligence. Perseverance, I say, as long as we live, for the word end hath reference to the time of our life. End quote. Well, <clears throat> profitable reading, and I was thinking throughout the day today, hearing the chapter expositions, especially those from Colossians, and hearing the sermon this morning, that all I really needed to do was get up, read the passage, read Googe, and I could sit down. <laughs> but I suspect we are going to look a little bit deeper um, and look at this passage in particular. So thank you for the privilege. It's wonderful to be with, uh, with you and to fill the pulpit once again. I know that it's been a little bit patchy over the years since uh, we've moved up here of me preaching through the book of Hebrews, which obviously is not the best way to preach through a book. You like to make sure and have regular practice of it. So if you'll bear with me for just a couple of minutes, I'd like us to go back and kind of get that outline, that overview of the book, and then find uh, our place here as we get to chapter 6. So and, and yes, I'm going to show my hand. I definitely am one of those who is a believer that Paul was the human author of the book of Hebrews. But whether I'm right or wrong in that doesn't matter because the fact of the matter is, is that the book of Hebrews, just like the other 65 books of Scripture, is actually God's own word, and he is the author of all of it. So... Um, but there's a lot of similarities if you look at Paul's writings uh, elsewhere and then you look at the book of Hebrews. And we find this wonderful Pauline thing where you've got a doctrinal section and then you have a practical section. And we see that right here in the book of Hebrews. Um, <clears throat> chapters uh, 1, beginning at verse 1, all the way through um, chapter 10, verse 20, uh, excuse me, 22, that is the doctrinal portion. And you've got that remarkable first three verses of chapter 1, which gives a preamble, and you could spend about six months just preaching on those first three verses because it takes you through all of Scripture. And then the rest of the book also unfolds, the, uh, especially the Old Testament economy. Uh, also, uh, after that, you go right into uh, this focus of the whole book. And the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 4, through the end of the chapter, you have 
Christ Jesus, the God-man, the sovereign king. So emphasis on his deity, his eternal deity. And then we have in chapter 2, Christ Jesus, the God-man. There is the emphasis that he who was in the beginning with the Father um, did in the fullness of time become man. And praise God that he did, elsewise we would have no hope of salvation. And then our author continues to unfold that. Christ Jesus, the great prophet, in chapter 3, verse 1, to verse 13 of chapter 4. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 14, and we start uh, the longest block, really, that focuses in, zeroes in, really unfolds for us this, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest. And it is so rich, and it is uh, overflowing with uh, so much exposition and clarification of what we have in the types, the figures, the shadows of the Old Testament economy. Um, Then from there we go into the practical portion, our rules of life, from chapter 10, verse 23 to 12, verse 14. The focus is on perseverance in the truth. Uh, Verses uh, 15 of chapter 12 through verse 19 of chapter 13. uh, The focus is on walking worthy of our calling in Christ. And then uh, the author finishes up there with a benediction and closing remarks in chapter 13, verse 20, to the end of that particular chapter. Now, in addition to that particular overview or outline of the book of Hebrews, I would like to point out that there are five other sections woven in. And these have given, I mean, real fits to theologians from all camps. Um, and I certainly don't think that I have the, the, the corner on the market of it. And in fact, if you hear anything original come out of my mouth, please take me down out of the pulpit and eject me from the church. I pray the Lord I'm always standing firmly in the biblical tradition uh, that we see in the Reformed faith. And so I think probably all the tough things have really been worked out during the Reformation and post-Reformation period particularly. But there are some warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And reading over some of the um, theologians who have debated back and forth about it, 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 it is a little bit difficult to try to untangle those warning passages. So there are five warning passages, and they kind of follow a pattern. And again, I don't want to be dogmatic on this, but it's almost an A, B, C, B, A pattern if you go through the book. Um, The first one is a brief uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 where the focus is give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Do not neglect so great salvation. And then you have the second one uh, in uh, uh, chapter 3 verse 7 through chapter 4 verse 13. Take heed brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In departing from the living God, exhort one another daily. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. And then we have this section that we looked at the last couple of times that we got together and looked at the book of Hebrews, and that's this really big one. In the middle of this discourse on Jesus Christ, the great high priest, is perhaps one of the boldest statements in all of Scripture, um, that in conjunction with what we find in chapter 10 of this book. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. But be ye followers of them who through faith and patience 
<clears throat> inherit the promises. And he's speaking strongly against those who, and this is very, very powerful language, those who crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. What a horrible thought. And then we come back in chapter 10, we see, If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. But rather, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And he speaks of those who have done despite unto uh, the spirit uh, of, of grace, who have trodden underfoot the Son of God. Again, terrible, terrible language here. And then the final warning passage in chapter 12, in the middle of that practical section, look diligently lest any man fail from the grace of God as Esau. For one morsel of bread sold his birthright. He found no place of repentance, even though he sought it carefully with tears. But ye are come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. So those are those five warning passages. And again, we kind of see a pattern there. And the emphasis in the first one there is to hear, believe. And we see that in the last one, and it's listen and believe. In between, the second passage is trust and obey versus distrust and disobedience. And we see that in the fourth passage in chapter 10, trust and obey versus uh, distrust and disobedience. And then we have this one section here, this central warning passage in chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, uh, really verse 8. And its uh, focus is on being lifelong learners, following hard upon Christ. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. Now, dearly beloved, I am firmly convinced from my studies that those that the apostle refers to here as being apostates are not true professors. I am convinced that these are those who are very much a part of the church, the visible church, uh, they make a good profession, even to the point of leadership. Um, there are some remarkable things we th- see in other passages of scriptures uh, of those who have been uh, literally the leaders of the leaders in Christ's church who yet have had no part with Christ. It is a horrible thing to think of, but those true professors in Christ, those who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, cannot and will not ever fall finally away, even though we do stumble throughout this life. So what do we make of these warning passages? And I know I just kind of skimmed over them very quickly, but what do we make from all of this? Well, I would like for us to stop every time we come to a warning passage. And Hebrews is not unique for having warning passages. You'll find it from throughout all of Scripture. Every time we see something like this, the first thing that we need to do is to be on our knees in self-examination and reaching out to the Lord. And that is what we should do every single time. As we go through this, I trust and pray that uh, none of us will ever be content in his or her spiritual walk. As long as we are this side of, of, uh, of heaven... We've got a long way to go. So, 
Um, I will also make one other quick note in passing before we move a little bit um, past the subject. And that is um, that instead of that breakdown of A, B, C, B, A, there's another way of looking at these in a more general overview of the warning passages in Hebrews. The apostle is very clear to point out those who are apostatizing from the faith either in doctrine or in worship or in holiness. And the emphasis throughout tends to be on the holiness. Well, if we left this at verse 8 of chapter 6, it would leave us uh, really in, in a bad situation, if that's all that we had to go on. But notice what the inspired apostle does here in verse 9. But, beloved... We are persuaded better things of you. We are persuaded of better things of you. Why is he persuaded of better things? Well, there's a couple of things I'd like to point out, and I did go ahead and read the whole chapter. We can't go past verse 12 today. I doubt that we'll even make it to verse 12, but if we get past verse 12 and get into verses 13 through 20, you get the real reason why the apostle ultimately has better thoughts of his audience. The key to faithful obedience is to cling to Christ. The key to our salvation is Christ. The key to all of it is Christ. Not just the book of Hebrews, but all of Scripture and all of life. Right? So, I'm going to quote from Louis Burkhoff because he puts this in a nice little succinct phrase. And he puts it this way. He said, It is, strictly speaking, not man, but God who perseveres. Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes His work that believers continue to stand to the very end. End quote. You know... Our pastor was talking about the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of election and how some people have said that, you know, that makes us arrogant uh, because we believe in that. It gives us pride. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you rightly understand the doctrines of grace, of God's free grace, if you rightly understand the doctrine of predestination or election, if you rightly understand it, it puts you on your knees because you realize That God saves us. We do not save ourselves. And if at any point my eternal soul and its disposition for eternity is even the least bit dependent upon me, then I guarantee I will be in hell. But praise God, our entire salvation is the work of God. So what do we do then? If our entire salvation 
is the work of God, well, we can just sit back and let him do everything, right? Um, to coin a phrase from Paul in one of the undisputed um, works, God forbid. William Googe puts it this way, talking about these warning passages, and especially, especially that one here in uh, chapter 6. Seeing that a hypocrite may go thus far and yet come short of heaven, how diligent ought we to be in the trial of the truth of grace. In brief, the knowledge of the upright is experimental. Their faith unfeigned. The work of the Holy Ghost renewing, the good word abideth ever in them, and they have assured evidence of their future happiness, end quote. So, we need to never be content to sit back and let God do all, for he does do all, but he also equips his saints. There is that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There are these constant commands to the saints from the beginning of, of Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation, there are commands to us to be faithful to the Lord, to be diligent, to pursue um, this so great salvation, right? We do sin all the time, sometimes even grievously. The remaining sinfulness in the believer, however, differs from the sinfulness of the hypocrite, not necessarily in kind or in degree but in their final end. A great example of this is Judas Iscariot and Peter, uh, Simon Peter, when it came to the, uh, their relationship with the Lord in his last days. We talk about Judas's betrayal and we talk about Peter's denial, but the fact is Peter's denial was a betrayal. So we speak of two betrayals there. But what did Judas do? And, and if you look at both men, it's very clear in Scripture that not only Peter but also Judas, they were very sorry for what they had done, even to the point of repentance. But to whom did Judas turn? He turned to the priests. I've shed the innocent blood. I'm wrong. And what do the priests say? What's that to us? See to that yourself. He went out and he hanged himself. Peter was no less struck with his sin. But what did he do? Turned to Christ. Turned to Christ. He turned to Christ because Christ drew him back to himself. Hypocrites apostatize completely in both outward profession, the tongue, and also in inward disposition, the heart. And we see that even today. We see that today where we see those even from, you know, reformed camps, even leaders in reformed churches who have apostatized the true faith and fled to Rome. And we see the exact same thing that the apostle here is warning against and elsewhere in the New Testament warns the saints about who are Jewish professors 
warns them against returning to the temple. There was a great um, persecution for someone who was a Jew in the days of the first century if they believed in and professed the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They wouldn't necessarily just lose their standing in the synagogue. They could lose their profession. They could lose their family. And the things you'll see the exact same thing today uh, with those in the uh, Jewish religion today. And those Orthodox families, if uh, a, a son or a daughter leaves the Jewish faith, they can be completely uh, cast out of the family. But the scriptures are clear that that's nothing. That's nothing compared to uh, what would happen if you remained in that. And that anything that does not have Christ as the object of faith, well, dearly beloved, the consequences of that is eternal damnation. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I don't care how religious someone is. One's religion can certainly send them uh, to hell and often does unless it's the true religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, praise God that as we go back through this portion of Scripture, even though we have this strong warning, this really cutting warning, there's hope. And there's hope of the greatest kind. We see how the apostle here says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And it does, by the way, remind me of Paul to the Galatian Christians. <clears throat> Consider Paul very clearly um, with those sharp warnings to the Galatians. And there, I'll just read you some of the language because it's sharp here in the book of Hebrews. It's just as sharp in Galatians. Galatians, here's a couple of passages. Verses four, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Um, <clears throat> let's skip ahead just a little bit for the sake of time. Let's, uh, let's pick up here in verse 8. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereinto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain." Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. And then chapter 5, verse 10. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And it goes on from there. But look at what Paul does here with the Galatians. He throws out to them, he's got those warning passages, he's got those striking comments, but he says, now, now wait a minute, what I'm attacking here and what I'm exposing to you is the danger of this heresy. But I think better things of you. I have confidence that you've not fallen into that trap of these uh, false teachers. We see the sharp warnings, we see the vivid condemnations of anyone and anything that would add works or ceremonies as requirements for a man's salvation. 
It's what's referred to as that mathematic religion, right? Where you either add to the word of God or you subtract from it or you multiply it with all this, that, and the other. That mathematical idea of religion. No, brothers and sisters, we have the pure word of God to which nothing at any time is to be added and certainly not when it comes to binding the consciences of men. The only time that the consciences of men are to be bound is to the word itself, to the pure word of God. But not by adding things outside of scripture as extra steps to your salvation. Let such as do those things, as Paul would say, be accursed in the strongest possible terms. So here in Hebrews, we have the strongest possible exhortations against and condemnations of halting and the progress of the Christian life. Why? Why is it so important? It's because we are treating with nothing less than the glory of the living God and the eternal disposition of our immortal souls. Can you think of anything more serious than that? Beloved, he says, however, we are persuaded better things of you. The word of consolation, praise God, follows immediately. There's a couple of things to pick up on. One, if you would, please turn with me over to 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. You know, preachers don't love the idea of coming to portions of Scripture that are warning passages. It's not comfortable to preach any more than it is to hear. I, prob- I promise you that. But it's a duty. It's a requirement. Listen to what it says here. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. It's it's not pleasant to stand up before God's people and warn them. And it's not comfortable to be sitting in the pews and to be warned. But praise God that there is this warning. Because if you go to a place where Lord's Day after Lord's Day, you get preached, or we'll use the word in air quotes there, the preaching is more along the lines of making you feel good about yourself and how things are in society and what you can contribute to society. It's all just a waste of time. You might as well go to, I don't know, some motivational speaker or your nearest bar for that kind of uh, Advice, but that's not the word preached. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Right? And what's the very first principle there? Preach the word. Well, as we just read from a couple of different portions, including that in Hebrews and Galatians, there are warning passages. And again, thank God there are. 
Complacency is nothing, no characteristic of the true Christian life. Those warning passages should drive us to self-examination, and most especially they should drive us to Christ, in whom alone we have our everlasting salvation. It's not just the welfare of the Christian's soul that's at stake, but it's the glory of the Lord that's at stake. And beloved, I submit to you that soul murderers must be exposed because they're tricky, because they sound good, because they put it just the right way where it almost sounds like it's got to be right. Never forget that our enemy, the devil, appears as an angel of light. And his servants are really good at imitating angels. No, it's for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, who is the only mediator of the new covenant. And it is for the protection and the safety of the sheep for whom he suffered and died. We get a sense of that. When we see what Paul talks about, he's in the middle of the book of Ephesians. He's talking about domestical duties in chapter 5. And he gets to husbands and he says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you that false doctrines and multiplication theory and religion, these are all spots and wrinkles in what purports to be the church visible. And what's more, these are all dangers to the sheep who get pulled away from the right path. And let me add one other thing for what ministers are doing when they preach the whole counsel of God, even the uncomfortable parts. They're doing their duty before the Lord and pray for that man that he'll always do that because on that day he has to give account before the king and head of the church of whether or not he did that. He's accountable for every word uttered from the pulpit. Well, while exposing the many hazards devised by the enemy of our souls and the many traps laid out on the path of our pilgrimage, the faithful minister will go on to encourage Christ's sheep. Yes, there's the warning, but there's also the encouragement that goes with it, especially when it comes to the tender lambs. By providing the clear encouragements from Scripture, that's exactly what our author does here. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. It's as if the writer here said, I've exposed these false professors and the wicked end of their apostasy. But I do not believe that you, O oh brother and sister, is like them. For I have no reason to think that you have turned back from the way. I have better thoughts of you. All of us ministers especially should have and express charitable thoughts for professors of the true faith. If there is some open sin 
Obviously, that's what church discipline is all about, and that's why we have a presbytery in the session. But this first principle is to have charitable thoughts of true professor or professors of the true religion. And let's not be um, forget that there really is a vast difference between a sincere professor of Christ and a false professor who is a hypocrite. Being able to see only the outside, however, faithful ministers and members must think the best of one another in the assembly of the saints here on earth unless proven otherwise. Something else that William Gouge says in this, uh, in this vein, he says, it's necessary for ministers to show some good hope of their people. If they have not some hope, what courage can they have to preach unto them? And if the people conceive they have no hope, what comfort can they have to hear them? End quote. It's maybe a simple thing to think about, but it's really profound, isn't it? But what is this apostle's persuasion of these better things? Well, his persuasion of these better things and his readers was not founded upon blind faith. He had reasons for thinking better of them. He had reasons based on their outward profession. Genuine faith has legs that walk and lips that speak of these better things. For the walk of a true professor is characterized by these things that accompany salvation. So what are these better things? Well, <laughs> and I have to chuckle a little bit because once again we're going back to the confession and something that's already been um, spoken to a couple of times today. But uh, specifically what the apostle here points out, better things that accompany salvation, he points out their work, their labor of love, their respect to God's name, that is to his glory, and their ministering to the saints. And one more thing, their continuance on all of the above. All right, so their work, their labor of love, their respect to God's name, their ministering to the saints, and their continuance in all of the above. Now we can certainly from this and other portions of Scripture add much more, like saving knowledge, justifying faith, patient hope, sound repentance, new obedience, humility, sincerity, constancy, all the other saving graces, and persevering in all of them. Right, so we can add and add and add, but this particular passage brings us, um, focuses us a little bit uh, more in this passage. We've got some scripture references that speak to this, but I'd like to quote a little bit <clears throat> from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it has to do with good works. Right, so let let's be very clear about something. Your good works. My good works, anyone's good works, right? It's not going to save us. It's not going to happen, right? First, we need to qualify what we mean by good, and we'll get to that in a minute. But there is nothing that we can do to work our way into heaven. However, if we have been born from above and have been given a new heart and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is a consequence to that salvation, and it is seen in good works. And the divines are very, very good about talking about what good works are and what they aren't. 
And they say in chapter 16 of the Confession, paragraph 1, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in His holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by man out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. It's easy to look across the aisle at some other churches in town and speak about that danger of good intentions. But the fact of the matter is, again, whenever we come to warnings like this, what's the first place, where's the first place we need to look? We need to look within and look at ourselves. How often have we been guilty of blindly going down the wrong way and yet had the best of intentions? They continue in paragraph 2, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. How long do we have for the sermon to go over just that paragraph? <laughs> yeah. Rightly understood, dearly beloved. These good works, while they have nothing to do with getting us into the door of heaven, if we are Christ's people, we will do good works because we have been recreated to do so. We are his workmanship. They're not anything we come up with in our imaginations, but they are God's own commandments. Yes, I said it. I know that in some places I would be ridden out on a rail for saying this. But yes, God's commandments are still valid to the believer. Especially so to the believer. A couple of passages of Scripture, Romans chapter 2, verse 7. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Matthew 10.22, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. Galatians 6.8, He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. This is all part of that section there that the divines speak of when they say that... <clears throat> um, by these good works, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, which is eternal life. Those good works do not save you, but... You need to be questioning your spiritual pulse if you don't have them. Because if you are saved, if you are in Christ, these works follow. All of these strong motivations for each of us is to stir us up 
to use all biblical means that God has provided us. Dearly beloved, we must never, never, ever be satisfied with our progress in the faith, knowing that we will not attain to that level of perfection that God requires as long as we are in this life and until we are in his presence, having been glorified by him. I'd like to read a couple more portions of Scripture, and I I know that our our time is getting away from us, but bear with me a little bit longer. This is wonderful, profitable stuff from God's Holy Word, and I pray that the Lord is using this to encourage us. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's pick up at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, and here's the key, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Right. So we've established that these good works are fruits They're not the motivations for God to accept us, not at all. They're the fruits of that so great salvation we have. And yes, they are of great benefit to us. But more importantly and primarily, they glorify God. And they stop the mouths of those. Stop the mouths of those, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 there's another quote. Let's, let's go ahead and read um, verses, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It's not uh, sufficient for us to... There it is, I had it written out. It's not uh, sufficient for us to try to make up what we decide good works are. Remember, what qualifies a good work? A good work is that which God himself has ordained, that which he calls good, only as such as God hath commanded in his holy word. Well, I look down the street and I see my neighbor, 
And he's a pretty bad guy. And he doesn't go to church on Sunday. And he doesn't really keep a steady job. I'm a lot better than him. Well, I'll tell you, if you look hard enough, you can always find somebody who's going to be in a worse uh, moral condition than you are. But dearly beloved, I submit to you that if we're going to do some comparisons, let's make sure we do the right kind of comparison. Look into the mirror of God's word and compare the image of you on your very best day to the image of Christ. That's the standard. And when that's the standard, it will put you on your knees. Isaiah puts it this way, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our sins are as filthy rags. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's not what it says. No, no, no. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our translators of the authorized version have really made that a gentle passage. If you look at this in the Hebrew, when he says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Hebrew is menstrual cloths. So the next time you're proud of your accomplishments, and I'm saying this to myself, and how good you are with God, think about that, and it'll sober you up really, really quickly. I promise. Should we reach the highest level of obedience and faithfulness in this life? What can we say about it? We have done but our duty. And not one bit more. There's no room for boasting in ourselves. None. There's no room for pride. When we look at God's word and we understand it rightly and we see who he is and the standard that he sets for fellowship with him, there's no room for pride. That pride goes out the window. Our ability to do good works, say the divines, in paragraph 3 of that same chapter 16, our ability to do good works is not at all of ourselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. I won't ask you to turn to it, I'll just read it for you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You put the period there and you say, now see, I told you I've got something to do about it. I've got something to contribute to my salvation. See right there, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. See right there, preacher, you're wrong. Read the next verse. For it's God that worketh in you 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's why even the most mature of Christians, the most faithful in the church, are but servants doing their least service. And then go back again to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is all the work of the Lord. Back to my passage here. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. <clears throat> Double negatives. The author loves these. God is not unrighteous. That means that God is righteous, Right? God is absolutely, he is infinitely, and he is eternally righteous. And the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, Psalm eleven seven. He loves righteousness in himself, and he loves righteousness in his children. But ours is a reflective righteousness. It's instilled and grown in us by the Holy Spirit of righteousness. Now, what is it that God is said here to be righteous not to forget? Or not unrighteous to forget? Or righteous to remember? What is it? It's your work. It is your work. But that work only which originally is His work in us, which His Holy Spirit works through us for His own glory, according to His holy word. Hebrews 13 is just a couple pages over. Verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. uh, continue. Uh, Be not forgetful to entertain... Oh, my... Oh, 21, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, And... uh, We're talking about this um, work being the work of the Holy Spirit in us when we do uh, that which is commanded in the Word. I love the benediction. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. What's next? Make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the benediction to the book. It is the Lord himself who is working in us. I'd like to give an analogy here. And I'll I'll finish up with this and then go to a couple of uses to leave with you. And Forgive me, we got a little bit into verse 10. We certainly didn't make it to verse 12. But I'd like to use a little bit of an analogy that will help us, I hope, to think about good works. 
I'd like to th- for you to think about good works in the same terms as you would think about the tithes and the offerings. When we come to worship on the Lord's Day and we bring our tithes and our offerings, we're giving something to God, right? Well, yeah, but what are we giving to Him? What's already His? In fact, we're only giving Him a very small portion of what He's given to us because everything that we are and everything that we have is a gift from Him and rightly belongs to Him. So we're only bringing back in our tithes and offerings what's already come from Him in the first place. So when we are obedient and we walk humbly with our Lord and the Holy Spirit is working in and through us in our daily lives as we daily die to ourselves and live more and more into Him, what are we doing? We are doing those good works, yes, but not by our own power. It's that which He has already entrusted to us and given to us. It's His strength, His grace, His love shining through us. What we offer to the Lord is something that rightly belongs to Him. And so those good works that we do, if they truly are good works, are merely outward expressions of that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit within us. But think about the tenderness and love of God. Think about the infinite condescension of God who yet calls it our work and promises us a reward. We're promised the reward of the eternal inheritance for doing what he makes us capable of doing in the first place. Now that is condescension on God's part. Dearly beloved, Let your light so shine before men, not that they can boast about you or put you on their shoulders and parade you around, but that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. When Paul here, or excuse me, the apostle here speaks of that work which we do, that the Lord God is Righteous to remember, not unrighteous to forget. He is speaking of that which the Lord himself is working in and through us. Very briefly here we'll talk about um, also this labor of love, which also is a grace, a fruit of that so great salvation in Christ, and that demonstrates that we have been born from above. The love is not natural for fallen men. Again, this is the self-sacrificing active love that comes from and reflects the ultimate love of Christ. He talks about the ministering of the saints. We are commanded to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And we are commanded to continue in that charity. Well, we're up against the clock here, so let's finish with just a couple of uh, uses. Let's remind ourselves to entertain charitable thoughts of one another. You know, it's so easy to be critical. We're all guilty of it. 
But the biblical example is something different, and that is, is that we are to entertain charitable thoughts of one another. But above all, I would leave you with this use. Glorify, obey, serve, and love the God who is absolutely, infinitely, and eternally righteous, who remembers his people and their good works, which they do by his Holy Spirit of righteousness. Let every moment of every day be geared toward magnifying him before men. We can take all the saints of all of history from beginning until the consummation and put all of that goodness that God has instilled in that whole mass of the elect from the beginning to the end. And I guarantee you, all of us combined throughout all of history will not add even the tiniest drop to the infinite glory of God. But each of us in our places, in our lives, is commanded to glorify the Lord before men. And that's why the apostles tell us, um, and why our Lord Jesus Christ said, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Well, may the Lord be pleased to bless to our hearts, minds, and lives these thoughts, and may his word continue to grow in us daily as we study and apply it. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess that in us, that is, in our flesh, there's no good thing. Father, we confess that our best works are filthy rags. We confess, O Lord, that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we contribute to our own salvation and absolutely nothing that we do to add to thine infinite glory. But Lord God, we have thy word which shows us our heavenly Father who condescends to record in his word those good works which thou hast ordained for us to be about doing. Thou hast shown us the perfect example of our Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely perfect, altogether lovely. Thou hast equipped us with thy Holy Spirit so that even that which is impossible with us is made possible by his indwelling in us. Lord, we pray that thou wilt encourage us with these thoughts, that thou wilt strengthen us to seek evermore, to die to ourselves and live unto thee. Evermore, O Lord, to shine forth the glory of thy matchless name before men. For thou, O God, art worthy. And Lord, we pray that 
whenever we come to these warning passages and we would keep them with us wherever we go, we pray, Lord, that we would use them as gifts from Thee to look and shine the searchlight of Thy Word into our hearts and the corners of our hearts and the little crevices of our lives to find those things that need to be weeded out and cast away. And that thou wouldst also with these warnings bring us the encouragement that we are ever and always in thy hands and that thou who hast begun a good work in us will see it to completion. So Lord, we pray that thou wilt encourage and comfort us with these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.